I, I'm imagining just an hour of Steve yelling at us. You know. <laughs> You're so, so stupid! <laughs> and welcome back to the 21st episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Charles Maxwood, and this week we have six panelists. I always want to say five because I forget to include myself. Anyway, um, our guest panelist this week is Steve Klabnik. So get your shoes on, go hackety-hack something up, and uh, why don't you introduce yourself, Steve? Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Steve, and uh, I do lots of stuff, including those aforementioned puns, uh, hackety-hacking shoes, uh, I do a lot of open source work, and I'm running training classes with uh, Jeff at Jumpstart Labs nowadays. So, uh, yeah, that's me. All right, terrific. Um, also on our panel this week, we have Avdi Grimm. Hey, this is Avdi, and I can't speak for anyone else on the panel, but I am wearing pants. <laughs> that That's a positive thing. Of course, we can't see you, so... Anyway, uh, the next panelist we have is David Brady. Hi, I'm David Brady. I run Shiny Systems, and uh, Avdi cannot speak for me. <laughs> All right. Uh, we also have but, but I am I am probably wearing pants. Probably. Do you need to check? No. <laughs> All right. Our, our next panelist is James Edward Gray. Hey, everybody. I'm James, and I'm afraid of Steve Klobnik. <laughs> uh, also on this week's panel is Josh Susser. Hey, good morning. It's Josh Susser um, from San Francisco, basking in the uh, revelation that I don't have a conference to produce this week. Yay! Yay. <laughs> and I'm Charles Maxwood. Two things that I'm working on is uh, Rails Rookies. You can go sign up for my Testing Ruby on Rails course. And... Uh, I forgot what the other thing is, so I will just not worry about it. <laughs> All right, well, let's get started. Um, this this whole thing kind of got started with a Twitter conversation where um, Steve basically said that every time we talk about rest, he wants to break something. So um, why don't you go ahead and explain what's wrong with, with uh, the way we talk about rest? Actually, so, before, before so we do that, can I jump <laughs> in over the top of him? Can I give the wrong definition of rest? Sure. sure. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, David, for not making me ask for a definition. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. A, I I, dre- I dreamt last night. Josh and James are gonna like. Can we get a definition? And I'm like, and I'm gonna be there for them. Um, so REST stands for representational state transfer. It's a brilliant idea for allowing services to talk to each other. In theory, it lets you universalize everything. The way Rails programmers use it is they take these four verbs: um, get, put, create, and delete, and they use it to push the database up to the service level so that um, basically any server can use any other server as a database connection. And it's stupid, it's not scalable, and it's wrong. And REST is a bad thing. You shouldn't ever use it. Now, kill me, Steve. Go. You know, I think they should build a framework around that whole REST thing that you were talking about, Dave. Maybe call it something like Active Resource or something. It's something, no. yeah. Ah, if, see, there you go already. They should clean that up. Maybe call it SOAP. Just, just should, they should, yeah, they should throw that away and burn it. For those uh, keeping track with the scotch drinking game at home, Steve's already had like three since we. 
I won't be able to talk because I'll have an aneurysm <laughs> and I'll be dead right here on the pod. No. So I guess the first thing I want to say in general is that uh, I tend to uh, use hyperbole extensively. So uh, I don't actually want to break anything when you guys uh, talk about rest. It's just that everyone talks about rest wrong is the, is the real core of the problem. And, uh, you know, this podcast is normally so awesome on like every other front that I just kind of, you know, go, oh, man, like, you know, you, you guys, too, have the same sort of misconceptions. And it's hard because unless you read uh, a bunch of impenetrable papers written by academics, it's difficult to sort of figure out why, um, why this stuff doesn't work. And so uh, I think that anti-definition was kind of a, a good one in general. Um, but basically it's that like REST is not about pretty URLs and it's not even necessarily directly about using HTTP verbs in the right way. I mean, although that helps, um, it's really all about hypermedia. And uh, at the, at one of the latest REST conferences, they were actually talking about rebranding REST as sort of like hypermedia APIs because that's what's actually really important. Um, and REST is sort of like gotten dragged through the mud at this point. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a whole Restafarians thing, right, to, like, make fun of people who are like, no, 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 that's not real rest. Like, I'm not the f- last or first person to ever, like, talk about this stuff. So that's right. And uh, there's actually key components of rest, right? And and it's been a while since I've I've read them all, but I, I can remember that one of them is, is uh, my favorite, actually, is addressability. And yeah. that's... Um, the idea that a, a given resource on the web uh, should have an address, and that's kind of the point of the web. And that's important for things like, you know, being able to throw somebody a link to it in an email or something like that. And um, often uh, that particular attribute of REST is at odds with things like AJAX, right? And we're always trying to uh, get around that with uh, Twitter's... Um, Oh, what is it? Hash bang or whatever they do, uh, and then yeah, yeah. and then uh, GitHub's uh, new technique where they uh, do the AJAX stuff to replace like file listings, but then they go ahead and modify the URL so you maintain addressability and stuff like that. Um, what are the other attributes of REST? That's that's the only one I right off the top of my head. So if you go through uh, Fieldin's dissertation in order, the, the these are all constraints. So like. I guess you should back up slightly. So as far as a positive definition of REST, it's an architectural style for building systems. So um, since it has a style, it's sort of like talking about paintings, right? Like you can say, oh, this is an impressionist painting. um, And you could sort of argue at the edges whether something is or is not impressionist. But there's definitely like characteristics of something that make it impressionist. And I have no idea what makes it for an impressionist painting. Um, But as far as REST goes, there's sort of these like traits that if your system has all of these traits then you have a restful system. So the first one is that it... Did did you just say then that it is possible to build a restful system that does not use HTTP? Yes. Uh, It's actually actually more generic than just HTTP. And HTTP gives you most of those constraints for free if you use HTTP in the way it's intended. And that's sort of where the, like, Rails verb usage comes in is that it gets you, you know, closer to the actual... You get all of the stuff for free because it was sort of... REST was, was in, invented to sort of back-justify these decisions that were made when architecting the web in general. Um, you know, like we, we developed the web first in HTTP 0.9 first, and then uh, Fielding did all this work to, like, formalize all these decisions that have been made, and that turned into, like, HTTP 1.1 is sort of, like, fixing all of the little, you know, inconsistencies. Um, but anyway, so main cool. constraints, 
biggest one's client server. So, um, and those are separate. And that's where the, a lot of the Ajaxy stuff gets into weird play because you want your client to also be a server, right? When you start doing like Ajaxy stuff, um, you know, we're sort of blending, blurring those things. It has to be stateless. So uh, this means that everything that's needed to address the request happens inside the request, uh, which means that um, you know it has great benefits for things like scalability. But it also means that the individual messages are larger. You know, all these things have upsides and downsides. You can add caching uh, optionally to improve performance. There's a uniform interface, which is the whole verbs thing, HTTP verbs stuff, and uh, there has to be layers. So you can add caching layers or um, you know, reverse proxy layers, things like that uh, in the middle. And optionally, there's an optional constraint, which is sort of hilarious, called code on demand. And it's basically JavaScript. So you can sort of push executable code to the browser. Um, so those are the big main constraints uh, as far as like an restful architecture as, as far as the system goes. So, so Steve, uh, maybe I missed it because you were like brain dumping at a terrific yeah. rate there. Um, the, uh, what about um, Hypermedia as the engine of application state? Yeah, so... So these constraints have sub-constraints, right? Those are like really high-level things. And so uh, Hadios actually gets discussed. I forget exactly where it is, but I think it's part of the um, – it's part of like describing representations. It's not actually in the like constraints of the overall system design. It's that that's how you design your the representations of the resources you're serving over one of these kinds of systems. I, I, think, I, that's one, I think that's one of the things – that that drives me a little crazy, and and is and I think that's true for a lot of other people trying to work with REST is that uh, f fielding considers that to be a very important part of how REST should work, and there there isn't very good explanations of it, and there's, there aren't good there aren't good examples of it, and and you just said it's like not even really called out in a big way because it's a sub constraint of something. Yeah, yeah, I mean, his whole paper is really short, right? And it's very dense. Um, I don't think it's not a similarity that I was reading Marx around the same time as I was reading Fielding's dissertation. So I was already in the in the brain zone of, like, this impenetrable jargon. Uh, so re somehow I think REST is about seizing the means of production. I can't remember. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> From each server according to its means to each client according to its needs. <laughs> yes. Um, but so anyway, so the, the other part of all this is, too, is that when you get into those kinds of high bandwidth, you know, very jargony discussions, uh, you lose the fact that this is not about, like, academic wankery, right? Like, this is supposed to help us in a tangible way. Um, and so there, there are times when you would not design a system via REST because REST makes certain trade-offs. Just like any engineering, you know, effort, you have to pick what things your system needs and what things your system doesn't need. And uh, REST gives you certain benefits at the expense of other things. So um, as a great example, like transferring HTML uh, is much, much more um, – the, the payload is much hot, bigger than if you had just uh, a proprietary like binary protocol, right? Like you could compact – you could send messages, um, you know, instead of saying like uh, this whole HTTP header, you could just send a one or a zero down the wire to make something happen and it would be much more efficient, right? So REST is primarily about designing systems that will last forever, and be uh, very, uh, they'll interact with other systems very easily. So it's, it's a much more like long-term vision than short-term. So how is something like uh, the statelessness, um, you know, 
it we, we it seems like almost all of web programming we're always trying to get around the statelessness of web programming yeah. you know and uh, how how is something like you know sessions and stuff at odds with the statelessness of rest so the thing the big thing about the statelessness constraint is that it it enables scale like scalability because since every message is self descriptive you could route any request to any like sub node that you're working on since theoretically they're, you know, independent. So once you start, um, you know, sort of going outside of this statelessness, then you run into all the problems like session affinity, um, right. Or like if you have five application servers, you need to make sure that you request from one user continue to go to the same application server, uh, afterwards. And if you can, if you can stay within the statelessness constraint, then you could just serve any request to any server and it would be totally fine. So, um, but then, you know, uh, one of the bigger ones actually is authentication too, which sort of goes along with the statelessness thing. Um, is that like, you know, without, uh, there's lots of complicated authentication is one of those things that's like difficult and sort of hairy. And luckily OAuth has made it pretty awesome by this point, but, uh, you pretty much need to use HTTP's built in auth, auth stuff or else you sort of get around this statelessness you know, situation and things get a little hairy. So it seems like Rails' move to the cookie-based sessions was actually a great step in the right direction as far as what you were just talking about because when that request comes in, it basically has the entire contents of the session. So yeah. we, we could write that anywhere and there would be no change as far as the server handling it. So. Totally. Yeah, that's cool. So I'm kind of uh, yeah. curious. It's It seems like... Um, to me, at least, it seemed like you were talking about not necessarily the way we were discussing REST, but that we kind of assumed that REST meant Rails REST. Yes. Um, so what what is, I guess, what is the problem or what is the difference between Rails REST and REST? So here's a great example that's actually pretty pretty simple. Um, the, the put HTTP verb um, is it has two semantics to it that are important that Rails gets really wrong. Um, I think, and and maybe newer versions of Rails have changed the, one of them, but at least it used to be true for one. Uh, so put is actually not an edit. Like the four verbs don't actually mean create, read, update, delete. Uh, they act, like put is actually an upsert, not an edit. So if you were to put um, a representation of a resource to a certain URI, uh, it would create it if it didn't exist or modify it if it did. Um, and so we sort of take away that creation aspect uh, with Rails and just solely use it as an edit. Did you just um, use the word upsert? I did. I think that's a great like database terminology term to represent that sort of semantic of like create or edit. Create or update. Oh, update or insert. What's, okay. Yeah, update or insert. Yeah. What's wrong with end date? I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, that sounds like something they do in Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Very nice. I um, find that kind of ang setting. <laughs> uh, so, so then I have to ask if, if put does not strictly mean edit or update, then does post not directly mean uh, create or. Um, so the big difference is that, uh, so post put is uh, idempotent. I think that's how you actually say that word, idempotent. I'm not sure. 
I was forced to read as a small child, and it means that I don't know how to pronounce half of words <laughs> syllables because I just sort of make it up, and my brain thinks that it's right. Um, I, I, I always say it idempotent. Yeah, that sounds better to me. So uh, really quick, for those who don't know, can we get a definition? Yeah, I was I was getting there. So basically, this means that you can you can the you can do something multiple times, and it doesn't have a bad outcome, which is a terrible description. It actually comes from some math stuff that I don't remember off the top of my head because it's nine o'clock in the morning. But um, basically, the the deal is that uh, certain certain verbs are um, idempotent and certain ones aren't, and that's important because if your network connection gets flaky or fails, you can retry the ones that are. Um, with no bad consequences, but you can't retry the ones that are not because they have side effects. So post is is more of like the generic non-idempotent verb that does stuff. So create fits in there really nicely, right? Because you post to some sort of factory or container and then it gives you back a new resource and create in general, you know, if you make that post five times, you get five things. So, you know, it isn't um, idempotent so, or idempotent. So, so item, that's sort of the big deal. So idempotent means that if you run an operation on something that's wrong, it will fix it and make it right. If you run it on something that is already right, it will do nothing to it. Yes. So the, the, the function will basically settle and it will stop. Eventually, it will, all the data will be right and it will stop doing things. So if your mom tells you make your bed and it's already made, it doesn't get messed up. Yes. Right. right. But if I tell Dave to give me 20 bucks and he gives me 20 bucks and I tell him to give me 20 bucks and he gives me 20 bucks, that's not idempotent. But uh, no, correct, that, correct me that, if that I'm wrong. Idempotent. You 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 would get zero zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> it's still idempotent because Dave yeah. is poor. Yes. No, correct just, me if I'm wrong. You can you can take you can take like some of the etag stuff and the uh, uh, like the optimistic locking locking of webdev and and make uh, posts and puts idempotent. Is that is that a correct statement? So WebDAV adds ex- its own verbs and its own extensions to things. And there's also this this technique called, uh, oh, what is it, Put posts. And there's there's some sort of thing that you can do to like make posts to be idempotent if that's the semantics that you want. But the problem is that if you start adding stuff to HTTP, then none of the caching levels or layers or anything about the like backbone of the internet style stuff knows what you're talking about. Right. And so well, I was just talking about like, Things. I was just talking about like adding. Um, I, f- I forget the. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the on the on the header, um, but basically the, the, the header that yeah. says that that says you know if you are this version of you know I have an e tag uh, of of the last version I saw if you are this version of the resource then do this post or do this put uh, otherwise ignore it. Yeah, I mean that's the caching stuff. So you wouldn't ever because caches are idempotent, you would never cache them is the thing. So theoretically, I guess you could return an e-tag on a post request and maybe that would work, but it would be sort of weird, I guess. Um, well, I'm talking about like you, you, you have, you, you get the request that you're going to post to, or that you get the, the, the resource that you're going to post to. And, uh, and then in your post, you say, um, you know, this is the last oh, yeah, version of the resource that, yeah, yeah. that I saw. Um, so do this unless, unless it has updated since then. But I think that's one of the problems of like fixing posts to be idempotent, right? Is that whenever you have to do two things instead of just the one, that's when it all falls apart, right? Yeah, I mean, it gets really uh, complicated. And incidentally, this is why like soap tunnels everything over post is because then it sort of bypasses all of the you know knowledge that HTTP has about the kinds of requests you're making, so that it makes no assumptions and it goes through, and that's. One of the reasons why it's difficult to, you know, cache stuff like soap um, as a protocol. Hey, actually, Not that I need to um, talk down on 
on soap in this crowd, of course. But, <laughs> but speaking of bat- of batching, that actually brings up something that I've I've, I've looked at in the past, and and uh, um, I've noticed that are, there are a lot of sort of um, hand rolled implementations of batching uh-huh. uh, in, in in some of the APIs out there. So uh, a lot of times it'll be like. Um, well, this this resource receives a singular JSON object, but this this other but this special batch resource can receive a an array of JSON objects, which which the other one would have just received one of, and each of those represents a, an operation, and then I'll return you a, like a list of results for that. And and something that struck me funny about that, and 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 I'm just curious if if anybody's done this is, can't you just use the existing um, multi-part um media types uh you know the, the existing my multi-part media types for for batch operations why why do we see these hand rolled ones I, I realize it's kind of down and nitty-gritty but yeah it's, something it's a good struck question me i i mean just guessing at why it's done that way is um when we're working at the application level it's like difficult to generate a proper multi-part request that has the right sections, whereas it's easy to call to JSON on something. In, in Ruby, at least, like it's actually surprising how hard it is to find a decent, multi, a decent generic multi-part library. They're all heavily tied to mail. I think isn't multi-part about the bytes though? It's not about like it's not really intended for multiple representations. It's like saying that there will be multiple. Like it's about byte ranges because this this happens where people use the. Um, there's an HTTP header called like content range or something. I forget what it is, but there's no, one I'm, of them I'm that... talking about something completely different from that. Yeah, well, I know you are, but I'm trying to make an analogy, I guess, where like isn't maybe I don't know. I'm not that familiar with multi-part so, specifically. So the, the so. my the my multi-part specifications have several types of multi-part messages. So you have like the idea of an email, an email that has some some binaries embedded in, you know, binary attachments embedded in it, like pictures or something. Uh, then you have the there's another there's another version of it where it's like okay here are three different representations of the same thing you know yeah, do, yeah. pick the one you like but then there's another one which is basically here are here is a collection here's a list of of unrelated objects but they're all pa- they're all packaged together um, and they each have their own media type um, and they each have their own name and they're all packaged together in one in one request um, and you can just iterate through them and do whatever you want with them. Yeah, it's probably just that nobody knows that that exists, and that's why everybody hand rolls things. Because that's the whole like that's what a lot of this stuff is, right? And that's the blog post that sort of sparked a lot of this off is that people just don't know these specs are really complicated, and there's a lot of them, and it's really difficult to know all this stuff. You know, it's like it's sort of like how we laugh about people that write PHP and they just throw you know SQL into their view because they're using templating, and we're like, oh, we build real applications, and you know, there's lots of these like stuff that's in the spec that we just don't know about because we never learned it. Because it's hard, and there's a lot to know. So if if like we're laughing at PHP people for SQL in their templates, who's laughing at us for what we're doing with REST? The people who know REST. Yeah, the yeah, people who know are, REST. What are they using it for? Who who's, you know, who who are these people? Are they like the financial tra- financial transaction messaging people or what? no? Because it's really REST is really bad for those people. Actually, um, a lot of them are like academics or people who are interested. Um, some of them are in the industry. So for example, uh, one of the guys at Comcast is super huge. Um, the whole reason I'm speaking at the Twilio conference tomorrow, or I'm uh, not tomorrow, Thursday, um, is because uh, there's a guy at Twilio who's like really into REST and he's trying to like bring that stuff into Twilio's API and it's actually a pretty solid, um, you know, RESTful uh, API. So like, you know, there's, it's just that 
it's difficult. Uh, there's a lot of scattered individuals who know about this, but they're working in larger contexts. And so it's difficult to tell your boss, like, yo, we need to take some time to like, you know, make this stuff right because I read this paper and it, you know, it says it'll give us these improvements. Programmers are really bad at making business cases for architectural decisions, right? So when I tell people like, if you implement REST, you can change your client and not, or change your server and not break everyone's clients. They go, wow. You know, but when you say like, oh, I want to make it in line with this academic paper this dude wrote, you know, nobody cares. So I think there's a lot of trade-offs too, though, like to kind of go back to uh, the item potent uh, put post talk we were having earlier. Um, basically, what Steve was saying was that, uh, you know, the put is actually supposed to be create or update uh, and then uh, post being. Uh, j- uh, just uh, well, it's it's almost the bad one, right? You want to try to avoid post whenever you can because it's not item potent. So uh, we don't want to be messing with it whenever we can. However, the decisions Rails had to make uh, were kind of difficult. For example, to give a good example of uh, a creator update, uh, S three accepts put requests uh, when you put files into S three. And so what they do is, you know, you take the file, you put it in there. And so if it wasn't there, then that adds the file. If it was there, it replaces the file, right? But in order to do that, the client library doing that request has to know the URL it's going to, right? You have to put to the final URL, which is simple in S3 because you know the name of your file, uh, which is where S3 is going to store that resource. Also... S3 is not typically, you, you don't uh, uh, put a file to S3 with a browser uh, for obvious reasons because browsers won't do put and, uh, you know, you how would you go to the exact right URL, et cetera, et cetera. The interface doesn't really allow for it. Whereas the problem REST, or, uh, sorry, Rails was trying to solve is we want to allow someone to add something to this collection but they don't know the final place that that will live. For example, um, in in Rails, just using the old, you know, the normal routing, something would be at resource slash ID, and they're not going to know what ID that thing is going to be assigned, so they can't put to the final URL. Or in some Rails applications, they generate uh, like a parameter for a pretty URL or something, you know, and you're not going to know what parameter they generate to. So so Rails wasn't able to make that choice, in my opinion, which is why... Well, no, see, create. the, I mean, but the, the, uh, the post for create is fine. Like, that's a great use of post. The difference is, like, what I would like to see is that if you, if you make a put request to a URL that wouldn't normally exist, it would send you to the create action instead of the edit action. Because then you would get that semantic, right? So, like that—that's that whole like scenario you just described is why you use create or why you use post and create to like make resources because you don't know the final, you know, URI. That's that's the whole thing. I mean, the the create side of of post is or of put is like lesser used in general because of that reason. Like you're letting the client choose the URI as opposed to the server. Um, the other, the we sort of got lo- deep into this this. Uh, you know, foxhole uh, about these some of these details, but the uh, the other one that Rails gets wrong with the with put is that um, you uh, you're supposed to put an entire representation of the resource, not the delta. 
And this is actually why the HTTP patch method was added relatively recently is because, you know, putting a, a whole representation over the wire is big and, and uh, is, is larger than just putting the, the diff. So um, the original intention, yeah, was supposed to be that you'd put the entire representation and, and it would appear there. And that's sort of also why it has that effect of like, you know, uh, give me $20 or not give me $20, but um, make your bed, make your bed, make your bed. You're describing the whole task. Um, instead of just the change, um, and so you sort of get to that that end result. But um, I definitely think the pragmatism aspect is important, though, right? Like Rails has done more to help people understand that REST exists and is important than anything ever before. So I also don't want to say that like Rails should have done everything perfectly to the spec because you know uh, it it did a, a lot. It, it was a massive, massive improvement over earlier Rails and earlier web frameworks. So I don't think that it deserves uh, like blame either, right? Like there's the ideal where you'd like to get, and then there's the way that you get there. And those two concerns are totally separate from one another. So, um, you know, so I, mean, Steve, I love Rails. <laughs> Steve, I have a, a kind of a technical question for you. Um, this is so the, one of the things that I see Rails getting wrong, and this is this is exactly why. I misspoke about Rails uh, or about REST in last week's uh, Ruby Rogues, and it's also part of the anti-definition. I know, and it's okay. I'll just go. Yeah, there, there uh, are speakers and misspeakers. Yes. Um, oh, that got. Could I get the job, misspeaker of the house? Um, <laughs> anyway, I think uh, I think it's taken. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you're right. They all so, have that job. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, so. Um, the, the rat hole that, that Rails programmers fall into is that because you know we, we see the resource must be unique, you must be able to put to this thing, yada yada yada. Um, kind of touching on what what Avdi said, what happens when you have a composite resource? So you've got this. Uh, when, when I start reading books on service-oriented architecture, there's this problem where okay, we we've got somebody signing up on the website and they they fill out here's their customer information, here's their address. Um, then they, they've got a little JavaScript map where they can draw an outline of where their neighborhood is. This is starting to sound familiar to Chuck, I'll bet. This is an app Just a little bit. that we worked on a couple of years ago. And uh, they draw their neighborhood on the map, and then they, they fill everything out, and they click Submit. Now, I've got a customer who has many addresses. Um, I have, I'm creating a neighborhood which has a name and some geospatial a, I, I, you know, uh, data. All, all of these resources are unique resources which will be, can be accessed restfully and have individual resources. But because there's about a 300 millisecond round trip to the server to do this RESTful API, and because there are no transactions across uh, because it's stateless, because you can't have a transaction across multi-state, we have to do this in a single put. Um, and that, according to all of the REST wonks out there, is not RESTful because we're saying, hey, subscribe user, which is not a RESTful thing um, because it's not item potent, it's not safe. Um, how do you turn that into something that is REST or should you? Um, or is it really RESTful and we just don't really – just, we just don't recognize the fact that this, this compound resource is a resource unto itself and we need to treat it like a compound resource as a resource? You got to it right at the end finally. Okay. Um, yes. So, have you ever have you ever read? Yeah, yeah. Have you not not none of it was marginal, but just like that is the answer. Um, have you uh, have you ever read Steve Yegi's, uh something something in the Kingdom of Nouns article um, before? Steve Yegi is like a great blogger. If you have not read all the stuff he's ever written, you should go do it right now. Um, but he has this article called uh, "Execution in the Kingdom of Nouns," and 
I um, I love this article very dearly, and it's because it's making fun of Java, which is one of my favorite you know pastimes. But um, he he talks about that Java is difficult to do things in because everything is a noun and there are no verbs, right? Like mm-hmm. even stuff like the strategy pattern is nounifying a verb. Um, sure, you're turning something into a class. So uh, now nowadays, I'm slightly conflicted about this this blog post because that's basically what you do with REST is you nounify all the things. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, the other thing, too, is that resources don't have to be unique in the sense that, like, your address uh, needs to be only addressable as an address by itself. So if you treat that customer as a, like, sort of a composite, you, you know, resource that you post the entire thing uh, of the uh, user and its associated resources and then it creates those and you access them in some other way, that's totally fine, right? So. You can think of it sort of like how we access um, the uh, we t- so technically all seven uh, thi- well not all seven but the okay so you take you do Rails ja- generate scaffold posts right so we think of that right. as generating a post resource but actually you're generating uh, three separate maybe three uh, separate resources you're generating a resource that shows you all the posts that the system has. You're generating a resource that gives you a form to create a new post, and you're generating uh, a way to look at posts that exist, like a particular. Wow. I actually view that, just to be clear, I view that as two separate resources. You're generating sure. the collection yeah. and then the items inside of it. Wow. Yeah. You just opened the fridge and the light came on. Awesome. Holy cow. Okay, so, so posts isn't the resource. The, the 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 list the collection of posts is a resource and the view onto a post is that a separate resource? Yeah, I mean, it, anything that you can hit with a URL is is a resource. Wow. So okay, mind the, blown. The only thing that a resource like so I ha- actually have Fielding's dissertation up because of course I do. Uh, and if you look at here's his definition of who resource. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? Uh, the key abstraction of inf- this is why I talk about being like the priesthood because now I'm like fielding section five two one one resources and resource identifiers. Awesome. Um, the, the key abstraction of information rests is a resource. Any information that can be named is a resource. A document or image, a temporal service like today's weather in Los Angeles, a collection of other resources, a non-virtual object like a person, and so on. Anything that could be the target of a hypertext reference is a resource. So it doesn't matter what they are. Uh, at all like and that's literally how vague the definition of what a resource is so So a lot of these people that are insisting that they're writing restless things really could make the argument no it's just it's just a different resource it's and it really could be restless or restful yeah because because it's not about like there's this one you know they're all individual and unique it sort of like violates srp in our brains i think that's why we kind of like uh, shy away from this sort of thinking is because if there's multiple ways of accessing an address, aren't we, uh, you know, yeah, like having, you know, violating that there's one uniform place to access an address's thing in the system, right? So it's sort of at odds with some of the other th- ways that we think about software. Right. Right. So kind of getting back to David's transaction question, it is totally viable to tease the transaction itself out as a separate resource set all that up and then kick it all in at once basically yeah so you can say like i have a transaction resource and i want it to you know do this action and then you send it a post request that says like okay commit and then that commit will return whether it is like successfully been committed or not um and and the transactions 
What? But but aren't all the okay? So you're saying you 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 hit a URL that says start my transaction, then you hit another URL that says create the address. Now hit another URL that says create the customer link to that address, and then you send commit. Aren't those stateful? Aren't those temporarily bound to each other? Uh, no, because they they're not like so. If you um think of it as like uh is is editing a person is editing a user resource not stateful. Right. No, it's not because you have the users, you know, you have the users URL and you're just editing some attributes of it. Mm-hmm. So in a transaction, you're editing some attributes of this transaction and then you're saying like perform this particular, you know, action, like gotcha. complete yourself or kick off some sort of computation. Right. It's no different than like anything. And transactions are one of those weird things where like people it's always transactions and authentication and something else where people are like, well, rest, you know, blah, 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 transactions. Um, mm-hmm. You sort of. uh yeah. So you can you can do it both ways. Then you could you could get a transaction. You could send the neighborhood. You could send the address. You and get IDs for everything, and then say, "Here's the customer linked to everything." Oh, the customer failed. Okay, back out all of the things that were linked to this transaction, and that would be slow. That would you'd have all the server latency of every single request, and, but that would be restful. Or you could say, "Here is the composite object. Please create or update everything." Here's the customer with the address and everything. Do it all at once, and that would be fast. But it would be it would be a big hairy controller method. Um, but it could be, be also considered restful then. Well, yeah, and it doesn't have to be a big hairy controller method. So, for example, you know, uh, think about a job queue implemented via REST. So you post, uh, "I would like you know um, this bank account balance to occur." Um, so you give it sort of like the final result and you say like, I want to transfer $20 from this account to that account. Please do so. And the server will return a like 203 created with a link uh, to, you know, job 752 or whatever. And then you would pull right. that job while the actual like transaction occurs and it does all that processing. And then eventually it would say, you know, okay, it's created and finished or whatnot. So um, you wouldn't even need to like sit and wait for all of the latency necessarily, and you wouldn't need to necessarily build it up either. You could also say like, "This is the final result that I want," and then just you know pull for it, and and that wouldn't be a hairy controller action because you would be just creating a job and then putting yeah. it in the queue, right? So the with the I guess by hairy controller action, what I mean is a composite controller action, right? It would it would delegate to all of the the sub controller actions for the composite object. Yeah, I mean, so one of the big deals with this with with REST too is that like. You can't think about this stuff in terms of exposing – this is why the original definition was kind of hilarious and so true is you can't think about it as like I'm exposing my data fa- database over the internet or I'm exposing these controllers and models over the internet. Like it's, it's a totally different uh, you know, thing. You're, you're exposing this like these resources. Um, yeah, well, well – you have to think about it as domain objects rather yes. than database records. But, but – but, I, I, you know, I followed what you were t- what you were saying about exposing a transaction. Object. You say, okay, create me a transaction, and then you use that URL for filling up all the pieces of it, and then you commit it when you're done. And and that makes total sense at one level, but it also sounds like it's um, uh, like for all the criticism that Rails gets for exposing all the database CRUD actions as as REST verbs, or uh, this sounds like way worse than that. <laughs> You're, you're taking something that's atomic at the database level, you know, a transaction, and turning it. You know, you know, if you have no place to keep state in the application except for the database, the, the you're, you're turning one 
database transaction into many database transactions. And I was about to say, Josh, this is making my teeth itch even more. But he says I can still have my composite controller resource, so I'm okay. I'm just going to go back in my cave and hide. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, and and I also might be slightly misrepresented. This is a very heated subject, I guess I should say. And because it is the morning and I've not had any coffee yet, I should have done that, but I didn't. You know, I may also be like there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of talk about how to implement transactions um, effectively. And there's a lot of differing views because, again, it's like a style. Right. So you're sort of arguing, you know, asking like, well, if I'm trying to paint an impressionist painting, how do I properly use blue? And there's like varying, you know, arguments about how, you know, good or bad. And I should probably stop using this analogy since I don't know anything about impressionism because it has nothing to do with it. Um, But you know what I mean, though, I guess. Yeah, and and I'm actually okay with this by saying that you could actually push the transaction up as a separate resource. Um, I cannot readily think of an example of why on God's green earth you would ever want to use it. But the important thing is is that it feels Turing complete when you say it that way. And there may come along a design in which you have no no ability to post a composite object. You have to post a little thing and and hand you know some other service has to hand it off to some other service and you have to get that back. It has to be synchronous, has to be returned before you can handle the next thing. And so having an, basically a transaction noun instead of a transaction wrapper, that actually makes sense. You're taking it, it won't be a database transaction. Heaven help you if you open a database transaction on that connection and then just yeah, wait, yeah. wait wait for the server to come back. But if you basically wrote your own explicit transaction locking sequence at that level, you could do it. And like Josh says, that that absolutely is the wrong way to do straight up Rails database crud. Um, but I'm going to think on that because I, I'm the guy that always tries to figure out the most perverse way to build something. So I'm going to think on this, so, on how to build something with that architecture. So, so, I mean, that does sound sound potentially useful if you have to do distributed transactions and you want to use two-phase commits kind of thing. Um, I had I had one question for Steve that I've been holding out <laughs> for a while, and that's the the question of um, the redirect status code. Yes. And, you know, so Rails, you know, when you say uh, redirect to in a controller, it it uh, you know creates a three hundred one status code, which yes. is moved permanently, which I guess is uh, one of the more abused status codes. So now we have 303, which is see other, which uh-huh. seems like it's uh, more pedantically correct. But I don't know, that, I don't know how that's going to interact with, you know, caching layers and things like that. Is that, is that what we should be doing in our Rails applications now? We should be doing 303? When somebody yes. that's opposed. So I believe that there's a th- that ideally it should be a 303, but I I seem to remember there's some sort of weirdness where um, browsers interacted with certain status codes strangely, and so I remember I don't remember the exact details, but there was some sort of thing uh, where like we'd love to use a 303, but we end up using a 302 because like Firefox two doesn't know how to handle 303s or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know that there's a little bit of weirdness there. But, yeah, so really it should be uh, 303 in the sort of like post to create and it gives you a resource back and then it returns, you know, like uh, – and actually I think theoretically there's actually a 20 – well, it would be 201 with a location on a create. But if you were um, uh, re- doing a redirect, it's probably 303 um, unless there was some sort of like – uh, you had it in this one place before and you moved it and you wanted to tell everybody like when you move to a new blog engine and you want to, you know, like point everyone at your new posts, mm-hmm. you use a 301. If you're just yeah. doing a redirect, you would do a 303. The, well, the, I mean, th- 303 says 
you know, if you post if you post to URI and you know you you need to do a get from another URI, then that's what the 303 is for. Yeah. And 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 it, and you should never cache a 303. I think is the is the part that gives problems. So yeah. I think you guys actually hit on an interesting point right there, though that uh, that I always think about is that it isn't rest. That that's one of the things that that doing it right is often at odds with how browsers work. I mean, think of all the code in Rails. You know, that's that's sent around. Uh, providing the restful verbs because you just can't get that out of a web browser, you know, and... Uh, That's HTML's fault, not browser's faults, by the way. Um, the, HTML, the HTML spec says that they can only implement get and post in forms. Gotcha. So, um, but at the same time, too, like, uh, going back to my, you know, uh, S3 example, just even if you even if you could do the put from the browser... It's hard to imagine an interface that would make that easy. You know what I mean? Where you would have to give the final URL and then somehow set the file to be uploaded. It's hard to imagine how you would easily enter that into a browser. Does that kind of make sense? Well, yes. Since we're almost at picks, we can't really necessarily talk about this stuff. There's a bunch of things that are all like around those. You could totally design a browser a thing that would do this. Um, and, you know, we didn't even really get to talk about Hadios at all yet, which is sort of disappointing because that's the biggest area where everybody falls short and provides the most benefit that nobody does. I vote uh, we have Steve back for a second episode. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so, 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 Steve, if, if we don't have time to talk about Hadios, uh, could you leave us with some pointers about where we could go to explore that and, so, and work on our own? Basically, the, the two things, and I'm not entirely 100% happy with the, the way that I wrote it, but that Timeless article about Hadios um, is probably – that I wrote is probably one of the best things um, there is uh, about it in general. Basically, and, it's just the idea that you don't let clients construct their own URLs. You return URLs in your representations and they follow the links. So like the way that the web browser – the way that the web works is that you don't remember every URL on a website. You go to the root and you click some links. APIs should work in the same exact way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's the, the like the example. idea there uh, is like if you go to a web service and it has 10,000 resources but it has you know like pagination or something then it should give you the first thousand or whatever and the link to get the next thousand basically yeah. so that you could walk through it and this is why pretty URLs are irrelevant because REST actually explicitly says that URIs don't matter as long as they're unique and they uniquely identify a resource. But what they are, like we could use those old Rails 112 style URLs and it would be 100% restful because there's nothing to do with it. All right. Well, that this is, is interesting and, and I think we could probably talk about this for another hour. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we do need to get to the picks. It's true. Um, so, you know, yeah, maybe we'll follow this up in, in a few weeks or something and, and see, you know, we if, if we want to – we could cool. do an episode on APIs. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Seriously. All right. Well, well, let's 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 plan on doing that sometime. And in the meantime, we'll go ahead and jump into the picks. Um, Josh, why don't you go ahead and give us your picks first? Okay. Um, well, I have a completely self-serving. No, it's not completely self-serving. But my my first pick is um, Confreaks came to Golden Gate Ruby Conference uh, this past weekend and. Uh, did a great job of recording all of the sessions and has 
and it's now just like a couple days after the conference and there's already a couple of them up online by the time people are listening to this podcast um, I, I imagine most of them will be available so uh, the um, there we were we had some really good talks there the lightning talks ended up being really awesome um, and uh, and Yehuda Katz and Jezebel Liam's keynotes just you know I, I got to go back. I got to go back and watch everything. I never get a chance to really absorb my own conference because <laughs> I'm too busy working there. But uh, yeah, so go check out the Gogoruko videos, Gogoruko 2011. Uh, so that's uh, that's my one pick, and my other pick is something that I've been playing around with a little bit recently, and that's um, a website called Clout.com, K-L-O-U-T, and this is sort of like how to how to rank. Um, people on social networks it's it seems like it's primarily focused around twitter which is cool by me um, i don't really use uh facebook or linkedin for professional networking but it it's it's pretty cool in that you can take a look at uh at people and how they tweet and what the topics are they tweet about and where their authorities are not so if if you just go look at um you know uh jeg2 on on the clout site uh, and we get to see uh, James's uh, analysis. You can see that he's an authority on atheism, which um, is pretty awesome. So <laughs> the, uh, uh, so I, I, uh, I showed this to a couple of friends recently and they all got all interested in it. And I, I've been, I, I think it's a lot better than just like you see somebody on, on Twitter and you have no idea what they're about and should you follow them, you can just go here and you can see a much better set of information about what they're, uh, what they're up to and why you should be reading them. And, and then you can get, start playing games about trying to get your clout score up there, which is hard. <laughs> so, okay, so that, that's it for my picks. All right. Those, those are both things that I used and really liked. So thanks, Josh. Um, let's have Opti go next. Uh, so let's see. My first pick, um, and, and who knows, maybe this is something somebody's picked before, but but is the uh, Ruby Cohen's project uh, from from Edgecase, um, and this was something I I had been sort of dimly aware of in the past, uh, but I actually watched uh, over the weekend. I watched some people uh, sit down and start going through them, and so what this project is is it's kind of a course in Ruby. Uh, but it's structured a little differently than most, so it's it's just a set of executable Ruby files, and you 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 execute the top level file, and it gives you some instructions, and it basically starts to run a test, and the first test um, the first test in the suite uh, fails, and it gives you sort of a, a pointer on how to on what file to look in to figure out why the test failed, and it's like the simplest possible you know true equals false or something like that, and so you go in, you edit the file, and and fix the test so that it passes, and then it says okay it says great you have advanced uh now there's uh now another test is failing and it points you to the file where that test is failing and it's another little ruby problem that's just a tiny tiny bit harder and it basically walks you through the ruby language uh fixing tests one at a time so they pass and uh and giving you like a nice feeling of achievement each time and um i think it's a wonderful like interactive way to learn uh, to learn the language or to learn more about the language, and it's and the neat thing about it is that it's also sneakily uh, teaching you uh, TDD in the process. Uh, so like you're 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 learning learning to program and learning TDD at the same time, and uh, really neat concept, and it works really well. Uh, so I was really impressed by that. Uh, also, uh, 
my my other pick is is unconferences. Uh, so uh, the thing that kept me away, sadly, uh, from Gogoruko this weekend was the uh, the Ruby D Camp unconference in Northern Virginia, which I've gone for for four years running now. And uh, these unconferences are are always uh, one of the highlight highlights of my conference going year. Uh, I always try to get to some. You know, they're they're uh, for those who don't know, they're self organizing. They uh, they basically get a bunch of people together and and they they decide what they want to talk about at, um, at the on the day that they're going to talk about it. And they they split up into sessions and they talk about interesting stuff. So um, very energizing, very engaging. Um, it's definitely not the kind of passive experience that you get um, from the, the traditional conference um, and. Uh, like the first time I ever went to an unconference, which was also the first technical conference I ever went to, um, you know, and I was just like a kid. I, you know, imagine that I, I would just listen and I actually found myself speaking up and, and, and hosting sessions. So it's, it's, it's a really kind of um, engaging and empowering experience. Highly rec- recommend if you can, you know, find a, a, a Rails camp or a bar camp in your area, look it up and, and try to attend. Oh, all right. Sounds terrific. You know, uh, David uh, made the Ruby Koans pass in a non-traditional way. You want, you want to tell us about that real quick, David? Um, so I, I wonder if uh, Avdi actually has already heard this story because he was at uh, Ruby D Camp with uh, Brandon Hayes who helped with this. Um, but we I believe down, I've heard this story. Yeah, at URUG, we sat down and tried to uh, make the Ruby Koans pass without editing any of the Koans. Basically, we said, we're going to include a monkey patch file how much of Ruby do we have to break in order to make the koans pass without changing anything of them? And uh, it took us about it, it took took us about an hour at Ruby at Urug, and then I went home and stayed up till about one in the morning finishing it. And it was it was actually about seventy lines of code. Um, I published it. I'll put it in the show notes. I published it, and Jim Wyrick and Joe O'Brien, who wrote the koans, wrote back with kind of a, gave they gave me the evil stamp of approval on it. So I, well, the story I heard was a little bit different. It was about the game of life. This was apparently this was not about you, but it was uh. about the game of life. And I'll share it real quick now because it's great. Um, somebody the the, uh, the it was a code retreat and and everybody was solving the the game of life together. And the instructions are here is here are the rules of the game of life on the Wikipedia page, and you have to implement that in Ruby. And uh, and so somebody solved it by writing a Ruby uh, Ruby mechanized program that would post um, that would that would rewrite the Wikipedia page to everything guys. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and then they implemented that. That's awesome. That's amazing. All right. Good hack stories. Um, Steve, are you ready to go next? Totally. So um, I guess I sort of already kind of uh, had one pick, which is everything Steve Yeggy has ever written, specifically uh, Execution in the Kingdom of Nouns, which is an awesome, awesome uh, blog post. And my my Hadios uh, post on Timeless, which you guys picked before the first time you started talking about this uh, REST stuff. But um, there's there's one thing that I've been really super ultra mega jazzed about lately, and that is Destroy All Software by Gary Bernhardt. Um, I don't know if any of you picked this recently, so if you did, my apologies. But um, I, I was coming back uh, on the bus from Canada recently, and I literally watched Destroy All Software instead of sleeping. It's that good. Um, it's it's like an intermediate podcast about um, interesting stuff, mostly dealing with Ruby. Some of it's about Git. Some of it is about um, Vim. Some of it is about using the shell better. But it's basically just Gary Bernhardt um, showing the rest of us how to be as awesome as he is. And uh, 
specifically the the fast tests one are very similar to what Corey Haynes has been running around talking about as well, um, which is which is awesome. But um, you know, basically, uh, the uh, just it's all stuff like that. So you know, here's how I test. Here's uh, two examples of going through and refactoring a controller that has gotten way out of hand. And uh, I've just really enjoyed all of them. And it's like it's ten bucks, but you get his entire back catalog. So by now, there's 25 or 30 episodes so even if you you know pay him once and then just grab everything he has and then don't subscribe in the future it's still totally worth it and i'm still you know planning to subscribe because they're they're all really awesome um in general so big super yeah destroy all software and then um there's also a uh there is a rest discussion mailing list that is specifically about discussing the abstract you know rest stuff um and a lot of the people that are very knowledgeable on it including uh you know fielding himself will answer your questions sometimes. Um, and so it's a Yahoo group, which sort of sucks, but you can just subscribe through email and not deal with Yahoo's interface at all. Um, but, you know, I'll post a link to that too of like the rest discuss mailing list. And uh, Pound Rest on Freenode is also really full of helpful people if you want to ask questions about this stuff. Um, you know, those are the two probably best places to go on the internet to get your specific questions answered about some aspect of what is or is not restful or how do you design something to be restful and all that kind of stuff. That's All it. right. That, that's awesome. Um, I, I actually interviewed Gary Bernhardt for the Teach Me to Code podcast, and he's a super guy. He's really, really smart. So, you know, I, I can definitely back you up on that uh, that pick. All right, David, go ahead. Okay, so for today, I am going to blow your minds old school. All right, so I have two picks today that are weapons-grade, hard, thinky stuff that you will be so much better programmers for for having done. The first one is an obscure little book by Roger Sessions called Class Construction in C and C++. This book was written in 1992. Don't let that scare you. What this book does is it sits down and it says, okay, C is not an object-oriented language. It's a procedural imperative language. Can we build, it's Turing complete, can we build an object-oriented system out of C? And the answer is almost very much yes. Um, he walks you through the guts of how to build an object-oriented system. So he walks you through how to build like the vector table, which is the thing in every OO system that tells an object, uh, when I send a method uh, message to an object, what function do I invoke? That, well, that, there's a thing called a vector table, and every OO language seems to have one some way, somewhere, somehow. So when you move on to uh, – like I, I read that book, and finally C++ made sense. I had to go back to C and read this book in order to have C++ make any sense to me. Um, the one thing you can't do in C very well is inheritance, um, but you can actually get around that by uh, uh, recursively including macros, but don't do that. That's evil. Um, but uh, object uh, or ob- yeah, class construction in C and C plus plus by Roger Sessions. Object oriented programming fundamentals is the full title of the book, and I'll post a link to that in the show notes. I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you want to know what is happening under the hood in an object oriented language, this is the book for you. You will suddenly understand things like when a base class calls the superclass or when somebody in Ruby says, you know, the superclass of the metaclass is the metaclass of the superclass. That will make sense. (laughs) That will make sense after you read this book. And the second one, my second pick, I cannot believe this has not been picked before, but um, according to our show notes list of picks, it hasn't. So I'm going to pick 
the structure and interpretation of computer programs, uh, videos, and textbook um, by Hal Abelson and Gerald Sussman. And these are lectures. These these lectures will piss you off. And the reason they will piss you off is at least they pissed me off because I had been programming for almost twenty years, and I sat down and I watched these videos. And in Lecture 1A, which is an overview and an introduction to Lisp. Now, these these lectures, you're going to learn Scheme, which is a dialect of Lisp. But in the very first lecture, you learn how to computationally determine the fixed point of a function and then use that to find the square root of a number. I'm like, that's really cool math. I didn't know how to do that. Um, and they show you how to do it in, like, seven lines of code. I mean, like, I... I for me to do that, like in C or in Ruby, I would be writing, you know, 200 lines of code to try and figure that out. And they're like, no, it's easy. You just do this, you do this, you do this, and boom, you're done. And the videos, there's about eight hours of videos, maybe more, I'm not sure. Um, might be 16. Um, but it's an introductory programming course taught at MIT. The reason it will piss you off is because you will learn some amazing computer science fundamentals that you never knew and these videos were recorded in 1986. And so you will go, I have been programming my whole life, and this has been out there on the Ethernet, ready for somebody to come pick it up for 25 years. And I didn't know this. And nobody, nobody around me knew this. And that will make you crazy. Uh, I also recommend the textbook that comes with the course. It is hard. It is an actual college textbook. It's an actual MIT college textbook. Um, but if you're just going to do one, do the videos. They are free. I will post the link to the videos on the show notes, and I'll post an Amazon link to the book as well. The, book's the book is free too. The oh, the book is free online as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I will dig that yeah, up. There, there are a million PDF copies out there that you can okay. download from all kinds okay. of places. But yeah, also, you, MIT itself hosts a free copy of the book, so okay. it's not even illegal. Yeah, if you want a dead tree copy, uh, new, they're one hundred dollars and used, they're about thirty-seven. Mm. And my picks. All right. Sounds terrific. Um, James, go ahead. Wow, waiting to go this late in the queue. I've just been sitting here going, wow, I need to do that, I need to do that, I need to do that. Um, so I, I'm too busy reading your guys' picks to do my own. Um, anyways, I wanted to add uh, Avdi's just a tiny bit. His Ruby Cohen's, I, I definitely want to plus one that one. Um, I did it way back a long time ago, and I was reading through it, and one of the cool... Uh, things about it is how easy it is to add to like I was sitting there playing with it and at one point you get to a test and it has you do something very simple with um, regex or you used to and then it would say but regex are beyond the scope of this tutorial and it just left them out and I was like oh oh no they aren't and so I just went and forked it and threw in a new file for regex and wrote up a bunch of basic regex tests and put them all in there so now there's regex tests and uh, Ruby Cohen. So I, I would encourage people to play with it if you're new, but also if you're experienced, you should really go through and consider adding a little to it because, uh, you know, this can be a great repository that we all just grow uh, together. So anyways, that was Avdi's pick, not mine, but uh, I just wanted to say that uh, my pick is actually going to be on topic for once. Um, if you enjoyed the discussion today about REST, uh, I learned everything I know about REST from one very good book. Uh, and uh, unlike the papers Steve talks about, which are which are all dense and horrible as far as accessibility, 
Um, this book is great. It's totally straightforward and it's in plain language. It talks about everything we talked about today, the uh, verbs, the hedios, the um, transactions and the different approaches to them. Uh, all of that stuff is in here and it examines it from a really neat way. Like for example, um, it does use a lot of examples from Amazon's S3, which is often held up as a as a fairly good RESTful um, API. And it says, yeah, it, you know, it is pretty good uh, API, but it does get several things wrong. And it shows you the things they get right, like put and the things they get wrong and stuff. So um, I can't recommend this book enough if you really want to learn REST the right way. And the name of it is RESTful Web Services. It's by Leonard Richardson and Sam Ruby. Uh, so uh, it's a great underappreciated O'Reilly book uh, that I highly recommend. So I, 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 I will I half to, recommend I, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so James, I hate to rain on your parade, but that was my pick over a month ago. Oh, ouch. Yes, repeat. Ouch. Okay, well, it's, it's actually relevant to this conversation. Make it the cookbook. You could just say it's the cookbook you picked this time because the cookbook is actually pretty solid. But I just want to say that that book is awesome, but it's also not gospel, and it does get some things really wrong. So it's like 90% awesome, and it's definitely a good introduction. Just don't think of it as gospel. Think of it as a, an aid to help you learn more. That is all I'll say since we're out of time. I like it because um, because I feel like it's so much more accessible than most Oh, totally. Material. It's great, but not, not, not perfect. Not that anything is. Yeah, so so basically what Steve is saying is read the book and then email him and pester him until he tells you which 10% is wrong. Yes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Sorry I interrupted. Are you, are you done, James? I'm done. Okay. Um, I, I Steve, guess. I, I, I wouldn't, I'm going to interrupt your interruption. Steve, can you say something about your book that's coming out just so people can can know yes. about that? Ooh, okay, so mm. yeah, so I'm writing a book on rest because the you know the best thing to do is to you know uh, so like basically once I to to fully formulate my own opinions. You know, if I'm going to run around and tell everybody that they're wrong about stuff, I need to put myself up in a place that I can be criticized too. So I decided to write a book on rest, and actually I was largely inspired by Avi and Exceptional Ruby. Uh, you know, as like you know, hey, self-publish a book and good things will happen. So. I decided that since everybody loved my blog posts about rest, I would write a book on rest from the uh, you know discussion point of let's talk about how to build restful APIs with rails um, and not make it specific to rails, but make the code examples specific to rails and um, discuss in very like plain terms uh, why any of this stuff matters to you and what parts of it you can't do where 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 you have to make compromises and uh, you know where you don't. Um, and where, you know, where Rails goes wrong, where it goes right, and just sort of how to do things. So it's going to be project-based where we take a, a little um, microblog and take it from the, like, standard way that you would implement a microblog and turn it into a fully RESTful web service um, according to all the specs. It's called Get Some Rest at getsome.re.st, and I have an email form up there you can put in your email so that um, I'm going to do the whole, like, beta book thing. So when it's half done in about a month or so, um, maybe two. Don't quote me on that too hardly. But um, I'm going to do the whole, you know, here's the beta of the book and you can check it out while I'm finishing it off kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm going to write something about this too because I think it's sorely needed. All right, super. That's, that's really exciting. And it's nice to be able to get some great content on something that's not well understood. So uh, thanks for that. And hopefully um, we can do that book in the future on the book club. Yeah. yeah. I'll let you pick it first. 
All right. Well, uh, I guess I'm last. Um, there are a couple of things that I wanted to pick. Uh, the first one is something that uh, I feel like people really need to be involved in, um, both from the, the standpoint of asking questions as well as helping people out, and that is uh, Stack Overflow. Um, just just a super resource um, as far as you know, getting help, finding answers. Heck, half the time when I Google something, I, I wind up on that website. Um, you know, where somebody else has asked the question. And even if you get part of the answer off of it, then, then you have the opportunity to post and say, well, in my case, when I was doing this, then this other thing applied. And uh, I, I, I like it for that reason. I also like it for the same reasons that um, Michael Hartle likes it. I, I was talking to him, and, and he, he has railstutorial.org. And um, when people email him and ask him questions about Rails, he actually tells them that they have to post their question on Stack Overflow and that he will go and, you know, send him a link and he'll go and answer it there. And the reason is, is because it's kind of a giant FAQ for everybody and it puts the answers out there accessible to anybody who needs them. So it's it's kind of a community collaboration that's sort of documentation, but really addresses particular problems that people have. And so I, I really, really like it. Um, I, you know, and there are other ones like Quora and some of these other ones out there. In fact, it seems like every time, um, every time somebody duplicates it, um, I see on Twitter that what's his name? Um, I think it's, uh, Spolsky or something. Anyway, the, the guy that owns a company that runs it, he always has some comment and then a link to the, the, the copycat of, of Stack Overflow. Anyway, um, the other pick that I have, um, I was talking to my sister yesterday we were talking about TV shows, and I had just finished watching Stargate SG-1, which I've picked in the past. And uh, I told her, I was like, well, it's it's probably like the second best TV show that I've ever seen. Um, it, it's either that one or Firefly or the second best TV show I've ever seen. And uh, and so she... Firefly, yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Anyway, so um, we were talking about, well, she's like, well, which one's the best one you've ever seen? And that's my pick for today. The best TV show that I have seen to date is Battlestar Galactica. And uh, I just I just loved that show. I couldn't stop watching it once I started. So um, that's my pick. I've been watching it on Netflix, but uh, I'm sure you can get it at other places. So, um, so anyway. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, those Shiny. are my picks. Shiny, yeah, Firefly. So uh, anyway, um, th- those are the picks, and uh, I think that's pretty much it. So uh, we'll go ahead and uh, acknowledge our panel one more time. Uh, we have uh, our guest rogue this week, Steve Klabnik. Mm. <laughs> See you later, guys. I don't know whatever I'm supposed to say in this space. I don't know. Uh, David Brady. Apparently, I am a restful resource. <laughs> James Edward Gray. I think this episode might need to be renamed from Rest Done Right to Steve Klabnik Educates the Ruby Rogues. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Avdi Grimm. Man, I need to go, go get some rest. <laughs> and Josh Susser. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I was looking for, my, for the appropriate HTTP response code. I, I, I think I'll go with 304, not modified. <laughs> All right. And I'm Charles Maxwood. Uh, a few things that you may want to know about the podcast are basically um, on October, is it 4th? We're doing the book club on uh, small talk best practice patterns with uh, Kent Beck. And I've actually read about a quarter of the book to this point, 
And I have to say that uh, it's it's probably not what you expect it to be. So go pick it up. Um, Kent is going to be on the podcast, and he's going to give you a whole bunch of uh, cool information, you know, related to that. And we'll be talking about what we thought of the book. Uh, you can get the show notes at rubyrogues.com, and you can get us in iTunes. If you go into iTunes, do a search for Ruby Rogues. Uh, please leave us a review. Let us know what you thought, and uh, that will really um, that will really help us out. So uh, that's it. We'll catch you next week. Um, and thanks for listening. We love you. Bye-bye. I, for one, am glad Abdi wore pants for this episode. <laughs>